It's been almost a whole year of talking about the AOR of 1991. We've discussed 11 albums. We started talking about where AOR was with David Lee Roth, little ain't enough. And now we are at the end of the year. and We're about to talk about where AOR was going, a glimpse into the future, if you will. A record that sounded to me at the time like a transmission from a distant alien star that I never wanted to visit, but we'll get into that. With me as always, my esteemed co-host, Matt Wardlaw. Say hi, Matt. How are you doing? Good, sir. It's lovely to see you as always. And one of yes. the highlights of my month for sure, like, I mean, there's, I suppose there's Halloween, like, you know, there's Thanksgiving that's around the corner. I don't care about any of that right now because I'm sitting here face to face looking to you. So it's a wonderful day. I couldn't agree more, Matt. And I see that you have uh, brought a new friend for us to play with at class today. Would you like to introduce? <laughs> I do. It sounds like we just shifted to hosting like uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because Mr. Rogers had something to take care of. We're like, Fred, we've got this. We'll take care of you. Don't worry about a thing. We'll leave the neighborhood. The neighborhood, it's going to be in perfect shape by the time you get back. But yeah, no, to be serious about things, it is a real thrill to have our guest that we have here today. I'm going to call her, I'm going to go big. I'm going to call her a literary giant. We first met, I suppose, <laughs> on Twitter in some form. And in person, that summit finally happens in real life at the pop conference in Seattle. And I can't tell you that I've had a bunch of amazing musical conversations with her, but we have in a sense. But more than that, this is important. I've often been listening as she and my wife, Annie Zaleski, go toe-to-toe talking about REM, U2, and so many other bands. And really, sincerely, honestly, Annie and I talk about this a lot, but one of the best life highlights in recent memory was pre-pandemic, taking a journey to Athens, Georgia, where we were on Jordan's home turf, and she and her better half, Pascal, just did an amazing job of rolling out the red Athens, Georgia carpet to us two times that year, and just making sure that we saw and experienced everything that we needed to see in Athens, Georgia. And I had been, as a music fan, growing up my entire life, just hoping someday that I could go to Athens, Georgia. And through the process of Annie working on a book about the B-52s, that really necessitated us going to Athens, Georgia, which was hard for both of us. I'm saying that quite sarcastically. So big, big thanks to Jordan and Pascal for doing that. Contract manager, rights specialist, writer, audio personality, radio disc jockey, I will add to that. Those are just a few of the things that you'll find listed as her specialties on LinkedIn. She spent six years plus at the University of Georgia Press working on a variety of projects, including the amazing book by Gordon Lamb called Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia. And more recently, she has been working as an intellectual property associate for the Princeton University Press. And as we were having that conversation, this conversation, in fact, that adventure is coming to an end and her services are up for grabs. So if you want someone really awesome and super smart on your team, Jordan is the right person for that job. Jordan Step, welcome and thank you so much for stepping in to talk about you two with us. And I want to have you share briefly, just as we kind of start, your thoughts um, working on that widespread panic book, because I think it's one that you were pretty proud to be associated with. And I also just wanted to ask, like, what were some of the other books that you were kind of really proud to help get out into the world, you know? either recent times or during your time with the University of Georgia Press? Yeah, I'm still recovering from that amazing intro. So thank you. So Widespread Panic <laughs> in the Streets of Athens, Georgia, 
holds a real special place in my heart because at the time I had never acquired a book before. I was working specifically just with rights and translations. And we found ourselves in need of a lead title mm. for an upcoming year. And I asked a friend of mine a very difficult question. Can you write a book in three months? And he did. <laughs> So Gordon <laughs> Lamb is one of these like local legend types. He was doorman at the Caledonia, RIP Caledonia, for many, many years. He was involved in all sorts of band management type things. He's kind of everybody's cheerleader when you need him to be. And he's just a mm. phenomenal writer. He has a weekly column in our local alt weekly called Flagpole. So he writes uh, Threats and Promises. And he just really knows the scene very well and is a great author in his own right. So I asked him, hey, nobody's ever written about what was called the world's largest outdoor record release party. Can you do it? And he he was like, yeah, sure. Just instantly. And I, <laughs> knowing what he went through trying to get that written in three months, I feel kind of bad about it to this day. But he did phenomenally. And I think one of the best parts about the book is that while it does center on widespread panic and the concert itself, it talks a lot about the necessary infrastructure that Athens didn't have at that point to put on a big show. Because nowadays we have Athfest every year. We have thousands of people come in and flood our streets and, and watch several of our best and brightest bands perform right downtown outside and have a great time of it. But when Widespread Panic did their record release show, that infrastructure was not there. There wasn't the capacity for it. There wasn't the literal power for it. So Widespread Panic in the Streets of Athens, Georgia, the book goes into some of the more detailed inner workings of how Music has to interact with local government, especially in smaller areas like Athens, these like little hot pocket towns of music where you have to have government entity on your side almost in order to create the culture that you need to and to support the culture. He talks a lot about Gwen O'Looney, who was just such a great personality. She was a phenomenal supporter of the arts. And, you know, we weren't expecting 100,000 people to come in that weekend, but they did. And it's something really special when, you know, this popular band is is playing outside and the mayor is on top of the 40 watt screaming, I love you. Welcome. Don't hurt my town. And that's just basically it. Mm. She was phenomenal. But I loved working on that because Gordon Gordon's an old friend of mine and it was a pretty easy process to get through. Academic publishing is known for being long and torturous, and we tend to have to <laughs> yep. submit and resubmit things for other people's opinions and advice. And it was a smoother than the normal process, although it was compacted in time. But usually my work at UGA kind of involved a lot more civil rights things, a lot more working on other local culture stuff besides music. We had a couple of really neat books about textiles, which was a huge thing here, especially along the coastline. We had a lot of really cool books about 
Some more music books are coming out. One of the last books that I worked on that I did get to see come out was Dr. Bradley's Outcasted Conversations, which is a collection of essays about outcast and their impact. And it's a phenomenal read. So I've gotten to do a lot of really cool stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And so I guess what I've wondered about the widespread panic thing is like, Obviously, they have that like big connection with Athens anyway, but like it's interesting to me, and that's why I love Gordon getting to do a book about it because it's really fascinating the mythology that has like grown around that show. So, how instant was that? Like, I mean, here in Cleveland, Ohio, like there are certain concerts and happenings that just have this legend around them, but like, you know, what can you tell us about how quickly like that? took hold in that way? And and why do you think it kind of like achieved the legend that it has besides the fact everything you just laid out, like just 100,000 people suddenly showing up, you know, and that wasn't expected. Everything that could have gone wrong because they didn't have the infrastructure, but it didn't. Like there's a lot of fascinating things around that concert that obviously as we're sitting here talking about it in retrospect, make for a fascinating book. But like at the time, like, why does that just become such a well-loved concert in the way it has? Like, I, I mean, I'm a widespread Panic fan, and it's like, I remember getting those. I was working in radio, you know, at the time, like, late 90s when they released that live CD. And I got it. I was excited. But it's just like, I think that, at least for my side of things, I was so busy with just, like, work at the radio station and just general life. I didn't grasp that to be a super important release. I mean, I was just getting used to getting bombarded by bands as we all are with live records and live, you know, videos and eventually live DVDs, all that kind of stuff. So to me at the time, like it was another live record, but the more I got to know about it in the years that followed, like it was something that like, even that live album, it's like, you know, people, when that came out, it's like they grabbed that and they held it close and it's become like a favorite memento in a lot of people's collections that they really love in the lore of like widespread panic, whether they were at that concert or not. It's a combination of things. One of the things you have to remember is it wasn't just 100,000 people. It was 100,000 widespread panic fans. So you're talking the hippies have overrun the town. <laughs> so everybody at that time who who wasn't into, let's say, the alternative lifestyle, were really upset about the idea of this many hippies coming in and, and drugging our water supply or whatever. There's a great story in the book that talks about how widespread panic had to pay to buy a ton of new feed for all the police horses because a rumor got out that one of the panic fans <laughs> had slipped LSD into the police horse's feed in order to make the police horse's trip. Like, not like trip trip, but, you know, trip. So. <laughs> yeah, tripping horses. Could be a Dave Matthews Band album title. God, yes, it could. So, you know, already <laughs> there was like this weird fever pitch in town of – the unexpected and the weird, which was not necessarily something that the town had kind of expected because at this point, you know, REM had already blown up and were worldwide famous and Athens does throw a hell of a homecoming. But 
REM fans are not panic fans, you know? Panic fans and jam bands in general have a mm-hmm. certain kind of, yep. you know, fan base that are arguably sometimes more passionate than regular fans. And that really freaked people out. And as Gordon goes into into the book, there were also like high class members of society of Athens who were holding a wedding on that weekend, like literally across the street. And we're talking people who have had like money and land and prestige in Athens for generations back. I'm talking the founding of Athens. These are these are Athenian royalty, you know. So that was a lot of hype yeah. in the newspapers, even though some of that was greatly exaggerated. There were a lot of interest angles to it. So immediately you have all this weird drama happening in Athens. And at the same time, it was something that the town could be proud of and hold up because you're talking about the time in REM had already lost Bill Barry as one of their members, you know? So Hmm. we were kind of looking at widespread as being the next big thing from Athens. We already had the B-52s and it's like, holy cow, I can't believe that came from here. Then you had REM and it's like, holy cow, I can't believe they came from here. So it's rare for lightning to strike twice, but here we are standing out on the 40-watt roof with a lightning rod hoping, okay, widespread can be the third time. And they kind of were in their own way and they've always been very well connected. So I think a lot of the appeal of that particular album is just the vibe around the legends of it. The legends happened early, driven on partially by the local press. And the band was just kind of mostly absent for most of the story. They were overseas touring. They didn't even get back until a day or so before the show happened. And they walk in and they're like, we we bought what for the horses? So I think most fans just kind of hold it in high esteem just because the the legends and the stories, it's mostly true. <laughs> it's it's kind of like a Pirates of the mm. Caribbean best start believing in ghost stories you're in one you know best start believing in panic stories you're in one so you know it's a fun legend and I think Athens is a great place to find fun legends and then just turn them on their head a little bit and then they're far enough removed from reality that they're still fun to tell alright so I can confirm that I can confirm everything she just said, but Jordan Step, everybody, and that's I guess my kind of unintentional side plug for <laughs> widespread widespread panic in the streets of Athens, Georgia, by Gordon Lamb. Please go and check that out. We are of course not here to talk about widespread panic, at least today. So, Jeff, I'm very intrigued because some of the stuff that you said in the intro before we just took a big trip to Athens, Georgia. It seems <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited because it seems like once again. Statistically, by the way, podcast listeners, this has been true for a lot of this year. It seems like you and I might be on slightly different sides of the line with this album, Octoon Baby. So I would love to hear you kind of like say, you know, where you come in. What's your, I guess, what's your origin story in a sense with you two? And like, you know, how does that lead into this album? And, you know, where do you sit with that record? Well, so I was born in 74, which means that I was probably not aware of this band until Joshua Tree. And yep, same. Was deeply annoyed by it. 
guys that were always photographed in sapia tones. They always seemed to be very seriously staring off into the distance, you know, maybe on a cliff or in the desert. I mean, I think that kind of thing is cheesy, whether U2 is doing it or whether the singer from Steelheart is doing it. And hmm. it was just uh, a little more aggravating to me because these guys, as an ignorant tween, I sort of lumped them in with all the other like Amnesty International type acts who were not <laughs> giving me the good time music that I desired at that point in time. And so I was always kind of... Uh, you uh, two agnostic, I guess. Like I, I didn't mind hmm. the hits. I just sort of, I would have appreciated being able to get away from them once in a while. And then when Rattle and Hum came out, you know, I heard the singles. Didn't mind them too much. We'll talk more about that record later in this episode. I think, I think its existence helped Octung in a way. But when well, this came out, you know, I didn't. I had no anticipation for it. I didn't really care that it was happening. And it, to me, ties in with what we've been talking about all year in that things were changing at the format. And yeah. I think this record, I'm glad that we're wrapping up the sort of main portion of, of this show, of this series, talking about this record. Because I think out of all the mainstream rock records released that year, this is the one that really points the way toward this big sort of reshuffling that was about to happen at, at uh, AOR Radio. And in the moment, for me, as a mainstream-loving 17-year-old, it was disconcerting. I did not – it sounded like the future, and I wanted no part of it. I, you know, I think maybe mostly subconscious level, I could tell that things were changing. And it was – I don't know. It was kind of unsettling, I guess, at the time. I've since, of course, come around with this record. But – when it was first out, you know, in, from my point of view, they had gone from guys who were taking themselves way too seriously to guys who, I don't know how to describe it. I, I, I guess I felt like it was extremely artsy hmm. in a very sort of performative way. They were very cool. And I was not feeling very cool at that moment, I suppose. Anyway, what about you? My reaction... Jeff, like I've gone off on some filibusters, we'll call them on this podcast, some <laughs> tangents, some tangents, if you will. So I'm glad that you asked me kind of like, you know, my my thing on this record, because I have a prepared filibuster this time around, which is not often the oh, case. Wow. Sometimes I just take these, you know, but I just was listening to this record and just had thoughts forming in a way that I was like, all right, I got to put this down. So for me, boy, we really are, as I predicted, on the total opposite sides of the street with this record because the really short version for everybody that tunes out for the next however long it takes me to deliver this filibuster, the short version is I was very excited about this record. That's the short version. But single-wise, I guess I had heard The Fly and Mysterious Ways going in prior to the record's release in November of 91. Mysterious Ways, in particular, makes me really, really excited to hear the album. And um, here in 2021, I know that I get pegged as the Night Ranger guy, the classic rock guy, the 80s hard rock guy. All these things are true. Only by the ignorant. They don't understand wow. you in your totality the way I do. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. That's why we continue to talk, because you get me. Same with you. Same with you, Jordan. You know. You know there's more there. So, yeah, all these things are true. But as you know, Jeff, like I grew up with a lot of other stuff. And even now today, I'm always listening to so many different things from so many different eras. I mean, I was just tweeting about how much I'm looking forward to the new Snail Bell record, to name one. So, why am I saying this? So, in a sense, 
there's always been a lot of music in competition vying for some time with my ears. And at this point in 1991, when Octoon Baby is about to make its appearance, this was certainly true because I'm working at a record store and there are certain albums that I really associate with that time period. Blue Rodeo's Casino from 1990, Lost Together by Blue Rodeo 1992, Gordon by Bare Naked Ladies 1992, Sarah McLaughlin's Solace in June of 1991, and no worries, favorite listeners, I swear I was listening to other albums that were not Canadian. The two <laughs> Guns N' Roses Use Your Illusion albums and many of the albums that we've talked about this year on the podcast as an example. So then there's this one, which ends up being a huge, huge formative record for me. And even then, like... It was just staggering to consider at the time that I looked at the liner notes, U2 came with a record that featured Daniel Lenoir and Brian Eno handling the production duties, Flood doing mixes, and like I knew what a big deal that was. And I could not wait after unwrapping the CD to give it a listen. Let's take a look at a brief yet important statistic for those who have listened to other episodes of this podcast. In terms of the Jeff Giles CD bloat factor, it's operating at medium levels in that sense, clocking in at just under around 55 minutes or so. So, Jeff, I would call that reasonable. That's pretty reasonable. This, is a, it's, by, this record's a good length. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, podcast listeners, mark that down. That might be the only thing that Jeff and I are going to agree on for this entire episode, <laughs> but that's, that's fine. <laughs> so, you kind of – alluded to this. This was really an interesting time for U2. They had a massive set of years leading up to this with the success of the Joshua Tree, a big, big tour. That trek gets immortalized for better or for worse with the Rattle and Hum concert film and album release. Now, here's the thing. I have since learned how much hatred there is in certain circles for Rattle and Hum. Quite a lot, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that at the time. Like At the time for me, like in a sense... It was just the next U2 album, and with how much I loved The Joshua Tree, I was really excited about that. And it's got some of my favorite U2 moments on there. I mean, I'll highlight When Love Comes to Town, their collaboration with B.B. King is one of those. Some of those U2 fans are throwing tomatoes right now already. <laughs> <laughs> Let them throw them. Let them toss them. I know some of those people. It's fine. And I didn't know a thing about B.B. King at that point. My education about B.B., even after hearing that song and seeing the video, was still a few years away. 1993 is when I finally see B.B. King live and his music fully finds its way into my soul. Now, I mentioned that because I think that that's been an element of U2 across the years is they open doors, whether it's a special guest like B.B. or just with what they're doing musically, like they take you on a journey. And there's this intent there that you're going to come away with something important after you're done listening. And I've really always like appreciated that U2 is a band that makes music with a purpose in that way. So, Again, you kind of alluded to this. The thing that comes to mind today as I'm sitting there getting ready to do this podcast with you both is how much of an overdose the world had been subjected to prior to Octoon Baby in terms of U2's music. To me, that's perhaps part of the critical backlash to Rattle and Hum because you're at that point where maybe you're like, all right, enough already, U2. So I think that's something that I thought was like really interesting as I sat down and I was thinking about this album today. It's very possible that as Octoon Baby is being released in 1991, that album, we saw it happen with other artists and other albums where it's like, it just could have majorly tanked. In addition to like the overexposure, anybody who found Rattle and Hum to be pompous, Octoon Baby and everything that followed with the Zoo TV tour really, really leveled up on that irritant for any yeah. critics and music fans who would put that element 
into their own personal spotlight of disdain. But we have Octoon Baby, which from the moment that you hear the opening moments of Zoo Station, and Jeff, this is where he ceased to agree with me on this a long time ago, but he he's not going to sit with me in the car on this one. It's an incredible, incredible album that if you have ears, it can't be denied. That's what I wrote, but as I've learned today, if you're Jeff Giles, it can in fact be denied. Now listen, in my remarks, I was copping to the fact that I was not necessarily mature enough to appreciate this album when it came out. I have come around since then. I don't mind this record. If we're going to go on a road trip, you can play it to your heart's content. I'll be fine with that. I listened to it probably four or five times uh, before we did this show. Okay. All right. I would not have guessed that. So there we go. That's that's good. That's good. It's just like listening to this record today, like it's just such an interesting mix of things. Like you've got the intensity of songs like Zoo Station, The Fly, Mysterious Ways from a production standpoint. But I also love like how it's just a very organic and open sounding album in a lot of spots. Like it's very real. Like you look at like obviously one, So Cruel, Until the End of the World, Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses? Like there's a lot of that on this record. And with where I was in 1991, really kind of emotionally confused or so I thought and trying to figure it all out. Like this album is one of those that like I just always, when I think about this record, when I hear this record, I just remember and realize how much that album meant to me then and how much it means to me still. Like I really just enjoyed like the whole journey that came as a result of this record. Like, you know, this record, the Zoo TV tour, which I really, really regret missing. The Zoo Ropa album, you know, you end up getting the Until the End of the World uh, soundtrack from Wim Wenders. I'm sorry, Vim, Vim Wenders. Which was another like just important. It's it's you know I think it's always a little bit weird to like call a soundtrack like an important record, but it's just like I've met a lot of people that you know that until the end of the world soundtrack is is important. It's just like it's almost like until the end of the world on Octoon Baby was just sitting there just waiting to like slot into the track listing of the Vim Vendors until the end of the world soundtrack because it just like kind of just fits so perfectly there. But I don't know. There's certainly for all the things that I don't like from a band, there was a lot that was like on deck that I should have hated everything about U2 and I should have hated everything about this album. Like other bands have taken me to a place that by the time they, you know, complete a really extended cycle like this, I don't want to hear their album, you know. So, and sometimes I didn't take that journey right away, but for whatever reason, like they just, I think U2's always been good about like just you can't look away like they're gonna grab your attention they're gonna find a way to grab your attention so like when i took that cd and i put that on and i heard the opening moments of zoo station and i talk about this a lot with artists but it's just like the importance of the opening track on the record and it's like i'm always interested when when a band has a track like this is their opening record how much science went into them making that track one or did it just kind of because some people will tell you, yeah, it works really great in the album sequence. You know, that's why we have it there. Like, sometimes that can be all it is, is it worked really well in the album sequence. And that's why it's track number one. But more than that, like, I tend to think that a band like U2 and, and some other, you know, bands and folks that I've talked to, it's like, they put that song, like, track one, because they realize what an incredible left turn it is for them as a band, that it's going to make a statement when people hit play on that CD. And it's like, I would guess that that was what their intent was putting that as track one on Octoon Baby. And it did exactly that because like I'm listening to that song unfold and I'm just going, holy shit. 
<laughs> it establishes expectations well, yeah. It does. Like, I mean, they, they, they level up in a certain way, like with the arrival of Rat on Home, but it's just like when I started like going back through the YouTube back catalog, like that's what they've always done as a band. But it's just like, like you, 1974. So I came in with Joshua Tree. If if I came in, you know, any earlier than that, I really don't re- retain that. So Joshua yeah, Tree same. to Rattle and Hum to Octung Baby, like each one of those like chapters that they have filed all the way to present day, like they're always going to be the, one of those bands that like, even if they dare to automatically put that album in my iTunes, whatever that album is, <laughs> as, the, as they did, so many people pissed off. I'm always going to be excited to hear what U2 has up their sleeve with an album. And I don't know, I guess as the kids these days say, I will always stand for U2. So there you go. That's my filibuster with uh, some bonus paragraphs that weren't even there on the page. You said some things I want to get into, but first, yeah. I hear what Jordan has Same. to say on this record. It's interesting to me that you really hit on Zoo Station as an album opener because it does do that automatic grab for you. Because I've always felt like Octung could have started three separate times because Zoo Station is the best album opener for it. But Mm. even better than the real thing could act as an opener. So could The Fly. And them putting Zoo Station at the beginning just really does kick it into high gear. So I found that interesting. But it's also always fascinating to me to talk to people who came up into Octung naturally because it was released on the day before my fourth birthday. So it's not something that I was able to anticipate. I instead discovered it when I was in early high school. So my high school years were listening to Octung Zoo and Pop. And it's fascinating to me to see how people fell into it and why. Especially since it was kind of the follow-up to what I call the moody sepia tone years and then go into the wacky, crazy, mm-hmm. we have color television years now. It's always a treat to see where people were in their musical tastes when they came across this album. Because for me, I never wasn't hearing it. You know, U2 was already on the radio. Right. You know, I was I had heard With or Without You probably a million times by that point because You know, I was a kid listening to the radio, (laughs) and we only had one rock station that we could even pick up, and that was hard to do. So Octone kind of missed me radio-wise, so I didn't really get into it until much later. And by that point, everything that Octone had already started to sort of forecast uh, as far as internet culture had already started to happen. So I come at it from a very different angle of information overwhelm is just kind of my natural state. I'm a mid-millennial or elder, what is it, geriatric millennial. So, you know, I'm used to having to pay attention (laughs) to every little thing. So the idea of these video screens all showing different things and the emotional overwhelm and the news overwhelm, that's just my natural default state. And I think, especially growing up, I was like 13 in 2000, 2001-ish. So growing up feeling overwhelmed by the amount of news and everything else that was coming at me at all times, 
Octum just kind of spoke to that and Zoo TV tour. So it's really fascinating because this is a very dark and kind of sexy album, but the really, the, especially when you're a teenager, that whole like, are you real or are you fake kind of thing really speaks to you. And for Octung Baby, it's all about personalities and like, am I the person you think I am? Am I a showman? Am I not? I'm telling you more than you want to know, but you're not going to take it seriously because you're looking at the bright screens up there. That's fascinating. I love getting the perspective of somebody who came at this album as an artifact instead of, you know, a new release. I think that's we don't get that often enough on this show. It's usually people who are old. So it's <laughs> I like hearing that. I want to double back a little bit and talk about Rattle and Hum, which I think is, you know, obviously very maligned in the catalog, but I was thinking about this while I was prepping for this show and even though that album is kind of a, a filler, it isn't really a proper LP in the sense that it's it isn't all new material. It's kind of a hodgepodge of you know live performances and covers and new stuff. I think that was perfect for freeing you two up to do something like Octon Baby without worrying about the oppressive weight of expectation that would have come. If it didn't exist, you know, if you'd gone from Joshua Tree straight to Octung Baby, I think the reaction would have been wildly different. You know, they chucked this piece of product out in 88, barely a year after Joshua Tree ruled the world. And it, some people hated it. I mean, it sold a, a shit ton of, of records, I think just probably partly on the afterburners of Joshua Tree, but at least it was something new and it was, it freed them up to go off and be weird in Berlin in a way that I'm not, maybe they would have done it anyway, but I don't think the audience would have been quite as ready if not for Rattle and Hum, if not for that little interlude there to keep YouTube, new YouTube music on the charts. Whether it was intentional or not, it was a really savvy move. I think we've talked about it a few times on this show that how crucial timing is. And when you have a hit as big as Joshua Tree, I think a lot of acts kind of default to taking a long break and really stressing, trying to get it right, trying to deliver the best possible follow-up. And the fact that you two didn't, I think benefited them in the long run. The other thing I wanted to mention was you talked about B.B. King. I'm sure you were not alone in that experience, Matt, in, in, you know, in that song being a gateway to B.B. King for you. I think it reminded me of Paul Simon with Ladysmith on the Graceland record, functioning as sort of that gateway to other artists and other types of music that were probably very influential on the artists who were featuring them, but probably unknown to the kids who are buying the records. The other thing that I was going to say, like you threw in, I mean, we talked about B.B. King, you talked about Lady Smith, Black Mambazo with, you know, Paul Simon. The other thing that I think really kind of fell on, on my radar is Aaron Neville and Lynn Ronstadt, that like opened the door to the Neville brothers for me. So I don't know if the same was true for you or if you already were kind of aware of Neville Brothers. No, man, I can't stand his voice. Oh. I love the Neville Brothers, but I don't I don't want to listen to Aaron Neville sing a duet with I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that did nothing for me at all. In fact, because of that song, it took me quite a while before I was able to listen to something like, you know, Yellow Moon. Wow. All right. 
Gateways pop up in places where you least expect they them, do. but you, you got to be ready. It's got to happen at the right moment. Well, let me ask you this. Let me take a side trip. And Matthew Wilkening says that's going to be the title of my book, by the way. So what is All the right. most interesting and unexpected gateway for you musically if you had to throw one out? The second Bruce Willis album, the one that nobody bought, <laughs> was my gateway to the glory of Jump Blues. Ah. Because he covers Louis Jordan on that record. He covers a song called Barnyard Boogie. Okay. And actually, uh, Mary Clayton is on that yeah. record. And I think Edgar Winter. Or maybe, no, it's Johnny Winter. Johnny Winter's on that record. So for somebody who was just like a fan of Moonlighting, to be exposed to the big wide world of these different flavors of the blues. That was an unexpected gateway that paid high dividends for me later. I'll throw one more in there and then we'll move back to the topic at hand. And that just is uh, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack to me was uh, the one that uh, introduced me to a lot of folks, not the least of which would be uh, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers. And little did I know, here's the joke, guys. Little did I know someday I'll be doing a podcast with Jeff, with Bill Medley. So here we are. It's It was unexpected to me as well, but yeah, there you go. I'm done. I'm done making the Bill Medley, it, Jeff. It's Giles a joke about my hair, yeah. Jordan. This yeah. is it. He's been- I, I figured. I figured. <laughs> so you mentioned rattle and hum, and so taking it back in the U2 direction, I think what was interesting about rattle and hum for me was that like Joshua Tree was so thought out and just like worked yeah. on, and like what was fascinating to me. Right. And I'm going to have a question from Jordan because I, I don't know her stance on this, but I do want to know her perspective because I'm always interested to hear like what people think about like, you know, why, the why we'll call it. But Rattle and Hum, like why I enjoyed Rattle and Hum was that compared to the Joshua Tree, like it felt like U2 was being a little bit reckless. Like they yeah. had been working on some stuff in the studio. They had some live recordings they were proud of. And they put all that together, as I think you said, like as a bit of a hodgepodge and gave people a certain kind of mixtape that they weren't expecting to get from U2. And so the couple of samples that they threw out from that mixtape, I was really intrigued. I was like, I have to like hear the rest of this record. I don't think I saw Red on the film until later. I don't want to say much later, but it was later for sure. So when I got that album, it was a really fascinating trip to me. Like I was really – it did not disappoint based on the stuff that I had heard on the radio. The stuff that I would heard on the radio was out there enough to the point that I hoped that the rest of the album would kind of like deliver on that out there-ness and it did. So the question that I'll put over to Jordan, not knowing your stance with Rattle and Hum, is like why do you think that people get so angry about Rattle and Hum? Why are there some people out there that just – have the hatred that they do for that record and film? I think it's because you can sense the panic. So here's my stance on Rattle and Hum. I think you're looking at one of the world's biggest bands suddenly realize that they want a career after they have released the world's biggest album. And they're not really sure if the material that they already have is up to snuff and if this is going to be the thing that they need to follow. So they were, what, they were in their late-ish 20s when they were uh, starting work on Optung, I want to say, which, you know, is a reasonable time to... Wow. Yeah. I mean, they were like 33 when they were on the Zoo TV tour. So late 20-something is kind of a good time and a universal time to kind of step back and go, what am I doing with my life? 
And I think what you're seeing with Rattle and Hum, which I do enjoy, which I do enjoy, most people don't see it as an actual U2 record. It's a stopgap. But I think some people hate it because they were just sick of U2 at that point. Some people hate it because they just were not fans of that kind of sound, because you're talking about a sound that owes a lot to the American South. And you two at that point were taking a lot of cues from the American South and the American Southwest. And that was already starting to get a little played out at that point, because you can just look at the Billboard Hot 100 for like 91 and it's all it's all music dancing. You know, it's CC Music Factory and Paul Abdul. And, you know, it was already starting to get a little old hat by the time that Rattle and Hum came out. But for me, it's one of my least favorite albums because like the documentary, quote unquote, of Rattle and Hum shows the band uncertain of what they want to do. They exerted way too much control over Rattle and Hum, the film. And the album Rattle and Hum is them going, okay, what if we did this, 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 and this? We've already got this in the can. Let's see how people react to it. And I think without Rattle and Hum, you would not have had Kong Baby because you needed that kind of reassurance that, hey, this is the best path for us to follow, or maybe we should do something else. I think at that point, the guys had all been playing that kind of same music for long enough. They were settling into, this is the kind of stuff I want to do versus this isn't this kind of stuff I want to do. And it split very heavily along the rhythm section versus the leads. So you've got Clayton and Mullen, who are like, yeah, yep. we want to keep doing the same thing that we're always doing. And then you've got Bono and Edge, who are already kind of the faces of the band, who are like, let's do something different and new. And there's nothing wrong with either of those two viewpoints. But I think Rattle and Hum was them having a moment of crisis and thinking, is this still what we want to do? And the people I've talked to who have kind of like a love or hate relationship with it kind of feel the same way that you can kind of sense that this isn't so much like a genuine you two want to release this album to their fans kind of thing. It's more of a test. And that's kind of that's a little bit more like the way that I see it is there's some great genuine work on there. I love it to death. But there are portions of it that feel like it was trying to test the waters a little bit. You know, you don't write a song like God Part 2 unless you're really trying to see what people are, are going <laughs> to think about it. You know, they've got stuff that, you know, it's like, all right, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. You've already heard it, but here's a new version, which is honestly one of the versions that I prefer. The new voices of freedom are amazing on that. Then you've got Van Diemen's Land, which, again, I love. Desire is interesting to me because that was the bellwether of where they were going. That da, 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 da. You hear Mm. that kind of like rhythmic thing going on there and think, okay, I can kind of now draw the through line from where they were in 1987 to where they were going to go in 1991. And Desire's kind of that key piece. They put out that single 
it did really well, and it had a good mix of what they had been and what they were wanting to do and the things that they would eventually turn into. So I can understand why people don't like Rattle and Hum because it is very much a transition collection of songs and not necessarily a thought out full album. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it function so well in the catalog. It's that it was this pressure release valve at a moment when, whether they knew it or not, I think they probably needed it. Jordan, you touched on the fact that their sound, you didn't really say this out loud, but their sound really kind of poisoned rock guitar for like, Mm. what would you say, Matt? Three, four, like every guitarist in a band that took itself seriously to any degree they wanted that edge sound yeah. in their guitar. The Bodines did it. The Alarm did it. There were a whole bunch of these bands that sounded like Edge was in the lineup for a few years. And part of that with the Alarm, obviously, is that like they toured together. Like they formed some sort of like you know bond in some form. So I think it, there were folks that kind of almost saw them as like you know the younger cousins in a sense. You know, like baby you too. Yeah. You know, it's like they were it's interesting hearing you mention them just because like they were kind of the ones that i think were a little bit allowed to get away with it because it was a little bit known that they had kind of had the endorsement and the blessing of you two like you two were fans sure but that sound became so widespread that yeah especially when you've got someone like the chameleons hanging around doing those same guitar tones mm-hmm. and they're yep. too they're too punk they're too raw but the alarm you know they're very they're okay Let me jump in real quick with just a rattle and hum thing. And then Jeff, I know you were going to another thought, like, you know, because clearly like the three of us, like I sit in a different place than the other two, you know, with rattle and hum, like where I saw rattle and hum, I guess where I've come to be with rattle and hum is my like, you know, musical discovery kind of deepened is I look at it in a way as being very similar to what Jackson Brown and some others have done, but we'll go with Jackson Brown in particular. Jackson Brown did this record, you know, running on empty, where it's like it was recorded in a variety of different locations, you know, on stage, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And so, in a sense, that's kind of, I think, in retrospect, how I kind of took what you 2 did with Rattle and Hum, because it was like pulling... To- so, I say that to say that, to me, Rattle and Hum does, it always has kind of felt to me like an album, because I kind of looked at it as something that was, you know, pulled together in that way, designed to you were supposed to be aware that like it came from a lot of different places, but ultimately, you know, it all came together as the vision of like where they were at that moment, you know, what they kind of wanted you to see from their point of view. I was really interested to hear Jordan, you know, mention the panic because like mm-hmm. I didn't hear the panic, but certainly I think I just added another 12 syllables to certainly you have to follow up an album like, the Joshua Tree, like, that's just such an excellent point, Jordan, because, like, there had to be some amount of panic. Like, I don't know if they have cop to it or if they would. If you don't have panic, then you're out of your mind, yeah. of course. Yeah. I think it's good that they had panic. Like, I think any artist should be concerned about how they're going to follow something like that up. But that's – yeah. I don't know. I think it's, like, a really – I think it's just such an interesting mile marker that sits between Joshua Tree and ultimately where we arrive at with Octoon Baby. So, yeah. The only other thing I wanted to add about Rattle at Home, which we have now spent like an hour talking about, (laughs) is that it was one of the first times I can remember a major artist being attacked for appropriation. Mm. You know, the timing is interesting because Paul Simon really didn't face that with Graceland, at least not 
in the moment. Yeah. You know, there were people who were a little pissed about the cultural boycott being broken, but the question of appropriation wasn't really something that he faced. But these guys, you know, between Angel of Harlem and When Love Comes to Town, they were accused by a certain sector of critics and some fans of sort of fetishizing this, you know, the roots of what their music was at that time. Like Jordan said, the American South, specifically blues, they were accused of, of being dilettantes at that time. Let's talk about the panic. We know yeah. that when the band got together to make this album, it did not go very smoothly. Mm. They went to Berlin. They did not like it there. Their hotel was gross, something that Daryl Hall can identify with. They should bond over that. <laughs> the studio is in disrepair. And like Jordan said, there was a divide in the band between Edge and Bono who were feeling like they wanted to expand horizons a little bit and the rhythm section. And the impression that I've gotten is that they were at odds for fairly significant portion of these sessions. And at one point even thought about breaking up until mm. Brian Eno came in and Eno's role during the making of this record was kind of unusual in that he would be in the studio for a minute and then he would just kind of fuck off for a while. And then he would come back with theoretically fresh ears and listen to what they had done and say, these are the bits that need to come out because they sound too much like old U2 or, you know, this stuff is good, whatever. But he listened to what they had done and he said, what you're trying to do here, you're doing better than you think you're doing. And you need to, you need to be all right with this and, and see it through to its conclusion. But I think that the panic that you see in Rattle and Hum is really manifest in the, the story behind this record, the process behind making these songs. It, it sounds like it was a very sort of tortured period for them. Yeah. I mean, that's always been my impression. Like it's... It's an album that, like, you can almost hear that on the record that, like, had things gone a different way, maybe we would not be listening to the record. There's definitely, and again, like, I think a lot of great records come out in that way because there was a good amount of turmoil within the mix of things. And I am always interested, like, I think it would be a completely different record if you didn't have that turmoil and that friction. I don't know off the top of my head, but it's just like, Jordan, perhaps you do, being the Uber U2 fan, were there specific songs that you're aware of that kind of came as a result of conflict? Well, I mean, the most legendary one was one, and that seems to have mm. finally reached itself into mythic status where the band were at each other's throats in <laughs> Berlin and trying to make two completely separate songs. and. Just by happenstance, Edge is playing the main part that we do know is one. And Larry was playing some drums and Adam was playing the bass for a completely different song. And they just finally clicked into a groove together. And then Bono starts singing his quote unquote bongolese until he hits we're one, but we're not the same. And that's kind of the big, the big <laughs> tale of how U2 saved itself from conflict by writing one of the greatest songs about conflict, about a relationship unraveling. Mm. I take that story with a grain or two of salt, just like anything related to U2. It probably 
did happen (laughs) some way similar to that. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Yeah, they are showmen after all. So I don't have a particular reason to disbelieve it. I feel like something similar or at least something that felt similar probably happened and resulted in the song one. But that is the specific song that everyone points to as the song that the band wrote to save themselves. What are some of your like, you know, favorite songs that really, you know, mean a lot to you on this record? Ooh. For me, I was always a huge fan of Ultraviolet, Light My Way, mm. because it didn't really sound anything like the U2 that I was used to. I liked that for a while, and then I think I ended up with Acrobat being my favorite off of the album, especially lyrically, because when I was a teenager and listening to this, I was very involved with like my local youth groups and that kind of thing. And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, which, mm-hmm. you know, people who have grown up in that kind of environment know the mental acrobatics you have to kind of go through where you talk like this and you act like that. And that just kind of became a very anthemic song for me for the rest of my my high school years was like, don't let the bastards grind you down. You know, I didn't know that that was a literary reference, <laughs> but Acrobat was kind of, it was the touch point for a lot of things that I can look back now and go, why am I always so skeptical of why people say and do the things they do when I know that they're not meaning it? It's like, oh yeah, because when I was 13, I was just listening to Acrobat over and over and thinking about how people were saying things they don't mean. And then just watching it unfold on news. But yeah, Acrobat specifically is kind of the big deal for me. The other one being Mysterious Ways, just because, (laughs) and this is a story that's way too long, but the basic gist of it was I was unpopular in high school. I grew up in a very small town. I somehow managed to land the cutest guy who didn't go to our school to go to prom And we were the only ones dancing to Mysterious Ways on the dance floor. And it was all anyone could talk about the next week and a half at school. So that's kind of like, yeah. I love that story. (laughs) That should be in a movie. (laughs) I feel like it should. It's such a like, it's a very like, I almost peaked in high school kind of thing. But, you know, it's cute. And (laughs) the guy was very nice. You know, we ended up going very separate ways, but... We did have a mutual love of that song. So, yeah, Acrobat and then Mysterious Ways is, is probably the the ones for me. Did you get to see one of the shows on the 360 tour where they were going heavy on the Octoon Baby stuff? Yes. Yes. So, funny story about that. My 18th birthday, they came to Atlanta. And the guy who I went to prom with and danced to Mysterious Ways, we went and picked him up from his college and went to the show and watched them play Mysterious Ways. And it was just, it was a great time. It was a great time. My mom let me skip school that day and take me to you 2 So, yeah, it was glorious getting to see I'm all assuming the, you were not the, the only ones stuff. dancing at that show. At that show, no. And it was kind of weird because it was like, this is our song. No, no, no one else dance. <laughs> yeah, it was, that was a magical experience. And like part of it was... As I said, like, I didn't see the Zoo TV tour, but, like, this is one of those tours where I was just – and people that have been in this position, 
as the 360 tour was kind of hitting this point, I was just like keeping my fingers crossed that they were going to maintain the Octoon Baby portion of the set list because the other instance that this happened was that like late into the 2016 tour with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, he was doing a big stretch of like really, really early tunes that was cool. So in that same way, I was hoping that U2 wasn't going to you know do a thing and change the set list before they got to where Annie and I saw the show, which was at Bush Stadium in St. Louis, July of 2011. And I pulled up the set list. Is Matt has a history of disappointment in this too. area. I'm thinking of oh, when you no. wanted to see you wanted to see Night Ranger play Secret of My Success, and they they fucked you at that show. No, right? they, no, 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 no. Let's drop it get it correct. List. It was the title track to Big Life, which <laughs> there which they go. had not played since the Big Life tour. Jeff likes to awaken anger within me. <laughs> they had not played it since the Big Life tour in the 80s, so it had been a lengthy stretch, but. I'll spare you, listeners. We've, you know, I'll spare you. I will. But yeah, I had to pull up the Bush Stadium set list to remember exactly how it unfolded. I just remembered that it was, you know, Octoon Baby heavy, but it's awesome because the show opens up, you know, in a row. You get even better than the real thing. You get the fly, you get mysterious ways, and you get until the end of the world. And it's like, and I just remember like how happy I was like at that show. I was not, and I've never been a huge stadium show guy, which I think partially mm. accounts for why I did not go to see the Zoo TV tour. That's why I didn't go to see We Can't Dance, you know, that tour for Genesis. That's why I didn't go to see the Division Bell tour from Pink Floyd. All of these now, dear podcast listeners, huge regrets for all of those three that I didn't see those shows. I think I was like, oh. Really? Yeah, absolutely. I was like. Those shows can be so unfulfilling. Why don't you just get the Blu-ray or, what, you know, get a bootleg? It's so impersonal to be way the fuck out up on the grass or, you know, up on the nosebleeds. Or even if you have decent seats, sure. you're still, I don't know. I, I'd i rather see a club show than than one of these big ass I just, shows that you're talking I about. I figured I would get a chance to see Pink Floyd again in an arena and that didn't happen. Yeah. I would agree with you yeah. that I would I don't want to do a stadium show. U2 is the only mm-hmm. exception to that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like that 360 show and yes, there are, you know, it was funny by the time Annie and I actually saw the 360 tour in St. Louis, they had already done like the broadcast on YouTube, I believe, from Oh, gosh. Rose Stadium? I don't know. They had done a broadcast early, early in the tour for 360. So we had watched that like in her apartment. you know. So we had seen the 360 tour and they were far enough into the 360 tour that it was like, oh, you know, we just had like decided we weren't going to get a chance to see that tour. And so when they announced that St. Louis show, it was a lot of fun. It was That was hands down one of the best U2 shows I've ever seen. So bringing it back to Octoon Baby, I'm curious for you, Jeff, because – this was another element of why I did not go to see the Zoo TV tour. When you heard that Octoon Baby record, first of all, let me look back briefly. Did you purchase Octoon Baby at the time that it was out? Nope. You did not. Okay. That was the sense I got. <laughs> so just being a person paying attention to the radio singles then, did you expect yeah. something on the level and the spectacle of the Zoo TV tour? Because – like, as I look back, I don't think I expected that. I think that was part of it was that, like, it was just even the stuff that I was seeing on MTV, like, as they were doing reports from the tour, like, it was 
so over the top and so overblown speaking to everything you just said about stadium tours that I was just like going pass. I don't want to see that. And, you know, it was only after I got the zoo TV video release that I was like, all right, I messed up. I should have gone to see this. No, I did a hard pass and that whole era of Bono having these alter egos that he would slip on during these. I found that deeply annoying, (laughs) deeply, deeply annoying. And I mean, I think part of it is just the fact that, you know, just my, all the emotions that I described in the beginning, I think those all sort of poisoned the well yeah. as far as that was concerned. I just – I had no interest in Bono giving me commentary on you know, mass media and the state of the world or whatever. I just didn't – I didn't care. I didn't want to know what his perspective was and I didn't think that he was particularly incisive you know, by putting on a pair of shades and, and being the fly or whatever the fuck. I, I – <laughs> It it made no, yeah, it, it didn't resonate with me whatsoever. It's such an interesting period because you get, like I kind of mentioned earlier on, you get the Zuropa album after that, and then you get the pop album, as yeah. Jordan mentioned. Like, so did you, like... Right, but so like, here's the thing, though. Like, they kept... Octane was enormous, right? Yeah. Not as, maybe not as all-encompassing as Joshua Tree, but still a big hit. But they kept doing that thing. They kept doing the rattle and hum type thing where... They never allowed too much time to elapse before they put something out in the marketplace, whether it was an official U2 record or whether it was just something like the Passenger soundtrack. Like They were always – they mixed it up. They didn't allow that pressure to build too much to the point where whatever new U2 record came out had to be perfect. It had to be bigger and better than what came before. It had to save the fourth quarter for Island Records. You know, It was not – they kept the stakes lower than I think any other band in their position would have been able to do without continuing to churn these pieces of product out into the marketplace between the bigger records. Really smart. I'm not sure it was a business decision. I, maybe they were just doing what they felt like they needed to do, but I think it worked out really well. Or for even them. just what they wanted to do. Like they, like it sure. seemed like yeah. they were often a band that was just like marching to the beat of whatever the hell we want to march to. Like they never really seemed like they were a band that let the system dictate. Like here's what we should be doing as a band. They were like, you know what? Thank you for your notes, record label. Fuck off. <laughs> Which is difficult when you've sold a billion albums. You know, yeah. you've, I really feel like we've talked about this a ton, but I feel like once you realize you have an audience of any size. It has an impact. It wobbles your creative axis a little bit. And when, you're, when your audience is as enormous as theirs was, I really admire having the, the ability to just continue hearing the beat of your own drum, let alone march to it. It's, they did a pretty tremendous job of navigating that whole period. It's, it's destroyed so many artists to be, you know under the spotlight like that. And they really handled it very well, I think. Well, it's really pretty incredible. And I guess I didn't really consider this till Jordan mentioned this, but it's like, as we talked about kind of at the head of things, like, you know, by the time fans got fans and geez, just music aficionados in general, by the time Octoon Baby came around, there'd already been a lot of U2 shoved out to the world. And as you just outlined, Jeff, like that doesn't stop. And it was Jordan's mention of pop that really made me think about that. Like, and yeah, you throw in passengers, but it's like, you know, from Octoon Baby, it's like you, you got Zeropo, you have Pop, you know, there's the Passengers thing. It doesn't stop. Like, it's really right. pretty astounding creatively how far they took that, like, 
creative, like, like that combination of what happens when the four of them make music together, it's really kind of amazing how many different directions they took that in, in a productive way that was creatively fulfilling for a long time before you can really say, okay, they kind of stumbled here. So I guess what I wonder is like- Creatively fulfilling and also satisfying the thirst at the marketplace. Yeah. Like I would put that Batman soundtrack single on that list yeah, too. Yeah, that's a great tune. Right? There was no larger piece of product for them. But let's get back on the radio. Yeah. And, and not only get back on the radio, but I my YouTube mental timeline is kind of fuzzy here. But I think that single was probably one of the more- radio-friendly things that they had done in a while yeah. at that point. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, they had been kind of, yeah, they'd been kind of self-indulgent. And then here's this big hit. I, I think Jordan Jordan's trying to say something. Yes, please. It's funny you keep mentioning the Batman soundtrack because Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me is probably my second or third favorite U2 song. I know mm. how it came about, but like it's kind of my jam for no specific reason. But yet, I mean, the- It's a fun song. The sheer amount of stuff that they were putting out was just ridiculous. I mean, they put out The Passengers in 95 and then Pop in 97. Although Pop, from my understanding, Hmm. came out a little earlier than they wanted it to because they had already booked the tour for Pop and were spending too much time remixing and just kind of had to put out Pop as as they were going to put it out. But- it strikes me that the 90s especially were at the time that you 2 were finally kind of starting to get a grip on what they wanted to do. And as Bono would often say, you know, we're reapplying for the job of biggest band in the world. They did that with Octung and kept it going with Zeropa because I consider Zeropa almost just like the B-side to Octung. It's so similar sonically. Sure. There are some mm-hmm. indications of where they wanted to go with pop and passengers, but it is so tied to Octung in my brain. I just can't let it go. It kind of functions almost as like how Rattle and Hum functions. That bit of Ooh. here's a little extra, here's a treat for you. Yeah. Your your fans, here's a treat. I think it came off much better than Rattle and Hum, particularly because it has something like Stay Far Away so close on it, which is just, you know, God tier U2. But you've got this ridiculous output, not just musically, but the music videos from that era are amongst my favorite of any kind. So they're really trying to push the boundaries, both tour wise and with their visuals too. They finally locked into something that wasn't just all dreary looking to the distant horizon thing. So it's really interesting (laughs) to me that that's what they snapped back to in the two thousands. You know, it's like, Oh, we had our fun period. Now let's, let's go back to being moody. Right. For you, like all that music, Jordan, like what was the most, like, I guess, fascinating moment for you? Because like, for me, I think this honestly like knocked me a little bit sideways at the time and I don't think I necessarily got it but like in retrospect one of the collaborations that I love the most is you know them doing Miss Sarajevo with Pavarotti like that's just like I love that <laughs> I was just thinking I love that. that and I just was thrilled like looking at this at this at the St. Louis set list on the 360 <laughs> tour like that was another great thing about that tour is they were playing that tune in the set list you know so that's probably the one for me you know next to you know Zoo Station just as far as like you know most interesting sounding YouTube but I'm I'm kind of curious like from your side of things like 
what they did in that whole time period, you know, that really kind of just knocked you out in a good way? The most obvious would probably be automatic baby. Oh, yeah, very true. Because despite, you know, being born and living in Georgia, I wasn't really an REM fan until I stumbled across that version of one that Mike Mills and Michael Stipe had done with with Larry and Adam. And you two introduced me to a lot of other bands, which introduced me to a lot of other bands. So you can kind of see in my record collection, or rather my CD collection, because of course, 2000s, you can see the through line of like, okay, this is where Jordan was really into you too. This is where Jordan tried listening to Springsteen and decided not to. This is where Jordan tried to listen to, <laughs> you know, these other bands that were obviously like either working with or influenced by you 2 And then you get to the point where it's like, oh, here's where Jordan discovered where R.E.M. was. And then you can go, well, here's where Jordan suddenly decided R.E.M. was number one and U2 was number two, and then everything else fell apart, and then you discovered Pylon, and Pylon became the favorite of all time, and then everything else kind of just dropped behind it. But, I mean, that's the most obvious one for me, was Automatic Baby, because I think, especially for me coming from the middle of nowhere, I'm not originally from Athens. I'm from a very, very, very small town several hours away. The idea that this homegrown Georgia talent could be on the same stage as these worldwide Irish rock stars and hold their own and be complete equals. For my teenage mind, that was like, okay, I can do something, you know? And that's that's a very like feel good, I can do it all kind of kind of thing. But when you're first learning to love music in that way, you kind of need that. That's why certain music appeals to you when you're 13 or 14, because it does tap into that like instinct part of you that, yes, you are special. Yes, you can do these things. And for me, seeing R.E.M. on stage with you 2 at the presidential ball was just kind of like, okay, you know, because... These two goobers up here singing sound like my uncles and cousins, you know? They look like them. And they're up there with the two coolest (laughs) people I know who are like the drummer and bassist from my favorite band. So maybe I should also get into them. And I did. And, you know, now, now that's kind of like my whole thing. So here's my final question, Octoon Baby wise, Jeff, before I throw things back to you. And I'll start with Jordan, I guess. Like, is there a moment on Octoon Baby from a song perspective that you would undo and take out of the track listing? I'm interested to hear that because I look at the 12 songs that are here on the album and I'm really pretty okay with all of them being there. But I'm curious if there's, if there's anything. If we look at, you know, CD bloat, you know, if we look at the 55 minutes that are here, like, is there a song that we take away that makes this a stronger record in any way? Do I get to replace it with anything? Sure. <laughs> Jeff Jeff doesn't like that part of the rules, but yeah, yeah, we can allow a replacement. I was a just I was just asking. I think out of everything, it stands pretty well on its own. I think trying to throw your arms around the world is probably the one that I would swap out for stay far away so close. I have nothing against trying to throw your arms around the world. It just 
it's the closest thing to filler I feel that that album has. Mm. I would agree. Yeah. I like that song, but I agree. You could, it, it's fine. It would be a fantastic B-side. See, I don't. Yeah. But I do like that song. I don't think Bono would ever want to hear you say, it's fine. <laughs> I think he'd it's throw okay. his headphones down and storm out of the studio. It's okay. Jordan brought up Springsteen, and I wanted to say I was thinking about him while I was thinking about Rattle and Hum, yeah. and I was I was thinking about how the reception toward Tunnel of Love might have been different if he'd had his own Rattle and Hum between mm-hmm. Born in the USA and that record. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know. I, I have a complicated relationship with Tunnel of Love, just in that I don't love that record as much as a lot of folks do, and like. It's mm-hmm. a certain kind of record like that came from where he was at that point. So I get it, but it was not the record that I wanted to get from Bruce Springsteen on the heels of Born in the USA, like, you know, which is why. And that's true for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, but we were just talking about this on the ultimate classic rock side of things, you know, just like I think our esteemed colleague, Dave Lifton, I think that he places that at like number one on his list of Springsteen records or something like that. So oh. what I think is interesting about you bringing that up is that like you talked about like if there was not a rattle and hum in between Joshua Tree and Octoon Baby, like I think it could have been a very jarring transition just in the same way that it ex- exactly was going from Born in the USA to Tunnel of Love. So, yeah. so it makes complete right. sense. Right. I think there's a lot of value yeah. in in that sort of throat clearing moment for an artist after a watershed commercial moment. I think Springsteen though would tell you that, like you know, basically he's like, "What I did, Jeff Giles, was he, he's like instead, he's like there was no new material there, but I did. Don't forget, I put out on three CDs, three cassettes, and five LPs." Live, 1975 <laughs> to 1985. So while you two bothered themselves with having some new songs on there, I was like, here's here's three CDs worth of all the best. And that still didn't help me with Tunnel <laughs> yeah, Love, okay. Jeff Giles. It didn't help me. Yeah, man. I just think it's a tough spot to be in after really- The big one. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really tough spot. And anybody who can get past that and forge a, a whole career beyond that point yeah. has my respect. 30 years ago, I was not interested in what U2 was selling, but I have come around. Did you come around prior to this podcast or like when did that happen? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I still can't really listen to Joshua Tree without thinking about all these girls that were wearing like all black in my middle school. But yeah, I can appreciate it much more now than I did in the moment. What do you think it was that like turned the corner for you? I grew up, man. I expanded my horizons. I I was not a young, dumb kid anymore. I don't know. You were you were clearly more advanced than I was at the time that this album came out. And I'm sure you still are now. There you are. Thank you, Jeff Giles. We should talk about the stuff that we always sure. talk about at this stage yep. of the episode, right? How do we think this record functions as a bellwether for what was about to happen at the format? I, I think I think it's a very loud alarm, personally, for a lot of the artists that we've been talking about all year long that things are changing. How so? Like in the sense that like, I mean, because the other thing that kind of happens, I mean, obviously, you know, grunge takes over, but you know, I think that like, obviously alternative music had a big, they grabbed a big piece of the pie. Like, you know, for a lot of the nineties, all these bands that came around that like, you know, in some cases achieved some sort of prominence in the eighties. And in other cases, like really, you know, were newer bands just random band I'm thinking of is like, you know, a band that emerged prior to this, but it's just like Big Head Todd and the Monsters. There were bands like Big Head Todd and the Monsters and Toe the Wet Sprocket that grabbed a piece of the pie in the 90s. So 
to you? Does you two kind of like start to open the door to that alternative revolution? I think it's a message that things are changing because even though you two is a little bit younger than some of the other acts that we've been talking about this year, they had an enormous influence on the sound of rock radio from 87 on. You know, they were at the table with the bigger acts at the format at this point in time. And they not only were not interested in copying what they had done before, but they weren't interested in sounding like anybody else who was making mainstream rock music at that time. Yeah. And they really pushed things forward in that corner of the marketplace in a way that a band of their stature did not need to do. It was brave of them to do. And I think it spoke to the way AOR had been kind of almost a monolithic thing for quite a while. And it wasn't just grunge that was about to change the format. Grunge gets sort of scapegoated for all the careers that were about to end as we enter the early 90s. But it was all kinds of things. It was a general unrest. It was a general... A lot of people were tired of of the formula. And I think this record reflects that it wasn't just flannel wearing bands from Seattle that were you know out to disrupt the status quo. It was some of the bigger artists at the format too. And these guys did it as successfully as anybody. Yeah. One of the excellent things I've heard said about grunge is just that like, you know, every formula runs its course. And it's like, you know, we saw that with certainly the quote unquote hair bands. You know, we saw that with, you know, these AOR rock bands, like what happens is eventually like, you know, the good songs run out and they, you know, things start repeating, bands start sounding like other bands. And it's like, you can certainly same thing happened with grunge bands. It's like there was this, you know, wave of great grunge bands, you know, followed by the B level and the C level. And if you're like me, as I was working- Candlebox. Where, yeah, yeah. You know, working in radio in the 90s, like it hit a point where every new band that came out, it was very painful because it's just like, it was just all starting to sound just so same and average. And I guess what your question makes me think of is that like you 2 as they've done, really just did an admirable job as the scene that they were part of was burning up in the fire. They did an admirable job jumping out and on to the next thing. And I think that's something they've always been kind of, you know, good about. So, you know, if we're looking at this as a bellwether of sorts, I think that I would tend to place this record as being one of those things that like in some form, being as tuned in as they have been, I think that they were, you know, tuned in in some form that things were changing. At the same point, I would say like they were making their own change. Like, you know, U2's like, I don't know, They've always been good in my book at like creating the thing that doesn't exist. And I think they did a lot of that with this record. Mm. Here's the other thing to consider. It's got to be annoying. Like, you know, that sound that they had on Joshua Tree. Yeah. What if that was really what they wanted to sound like? Yeah, I don't know. What if that was their favorite sound? And then all these other assholes <laughs> came and, and, and piggybacked <laughs> onto that sound and, 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 you know, diluted it to the point where it became a parody of itself. And you're like, well, fuck, I want to keep making records that sound like this, but I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Well, then know. they did, though. You know, they came back in 2000 and had <laughs> All That You Can't Leave Behind. Yes. That was yes. kind of that same throwback. And then That's true. No Line on the Horizon, which is one of my top favorite albums of theirs, is in that same Joshua Tree vein. So I think you're really kind of on to something there that that's actually probably closer to the, the kind of sounds that they want to do. These giant soundscapes of twinkling edge guitars played on two strings and 
delayed is is all get out <laughs> and you know just that kind of momentous thing because you know magnificent the song is just very emblematic of what the band is and i think it it didn't get a fair shake when it came out but that's still a very classic sounding u2 song for me even though it's a much more modern one which is really weird of me to say considering that album's like 10 years old now but I do think you're on to something <laughs> there. Like that's probably kind of closer to the sounds that they want to do. I can't imagine that the process for making those more experimental albums was easy. Although I have heard that you two making any album at any time is yeah. not easy. You never know, but it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I do think it was a bellwether of the times for, how different things were going to start to sound. There was a story I think Bono told at one point where he and Edge were hitchhiking in Tennessee during the time of the Rattle and Hum tour. And this kid picked him up and his truck is like, hey, you guys want to listen to some music? And he puts in a tape that had been mixed differently than <sighs> anything else they had ever heard. And it was like sort of a grunge or it might have even been like a Metallica something. And it blew the speakers out and it just sounded so different than what any of their albums had sounded like. So if there's any kernel of truth to that, that may be something that they kind of realized was we do need to change up our sound and we need to change how people hear it, not just, you know, the sound itself. We need to yeah. change how people experience it, how it's mixed and mastered, and how it's delivered to people, because people were starting to get more high-end stereos in their vehicles starting in, in that 90s era. And, you know, that could be a good factor for the sound change as well. I think we're running out of time here, Matt. I think you're correct. We need to acknowledge that we've probably said all there is to say, at least for today. I have an awards album. show to cover, Jeff. Oh There's my an award show that's Death demanding to my attention. all awards shows, as I like to say. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that we got that in at least once in this episode. Death to all awards shows. I can't wait to be sleeping in my bed later tonight. This brings the regular portion of our podcast program to a conclusion. We have covered 12 albums now, which is what we set out to do. But we did. We will be back. There's happy news. There's a little bonus here at the end of the rainbow. We're going to be back with one more bonus episode to talk about some of the many records that we did not have a chance to cover in full during this year-long journey. So I'm going to save all of the the mushy stuff that I would probably yeah. like to say about this whole journey with you, Matt, until our mm -hmm. next episode. I'll do the same, but I'll also say that, like you know, the other happy news is that you and I have been hashing out behind the scenes, and we're going to continue with a new podcast for 2022. So while we will not, yes, you know, I'll give it away. We're we're not going to roll forward and cover 1992 next year. We're not going to do that. We might talk about some records from 1992 in the course of doing what we're going to do with the podcast. But we're mapping out what feels like a pretty exciting podcast that will launch in January of 2022, and preparing you know we're trying to like lure our first couple of guests to yes. be part of it they won't know what much like jordan they won't know what hit them until after <laughs> we're done recording so jordan thank you for joining us giving us all your thoughts about this record Man, so awesome. guys it's it's been a blast thanks for having me and i hope by the time this episode airs in early december somebody has snapped you up and is paying you handsomely for your services yeah, we'll see.
Yeah. And the other thing we should mention briefly is that Jordan is, you know, getting married in December around the time that this episode will be out there and airing. So, Jeff, you and I were doing a podcast at the time that I got married. And the difference here is that you and I were sitting talking to Bruce Hornsby as I was about to get married. Now, unfortunately, Jordan is about to get married and she's talking to us. So that's not nearly – doesn't have nearly the same sizzle to it. But From what I recall, Bruce Hornsby was rather rude to me during that conversation. So I, I would like to think was. that Jordan got the better end of the deal here. I do think I did. She really did. She really did. But, you know, <laughs> it's a moment that sticks in my memory that like it was like a really cool way to kind of just like be sitting there at the point where Jordan is now where it's like there's – a lot of things to get done before that special day. Like I know that like I was sitting there doing that podcast on that particular day, freaked out about certain things. And there was some weird calm that came about as a result of Jeff, like really kind of just revealing to Bruce Hornsby that I was about to get married, which I was not expecting. So we had kind of a good conversation. I think that was one of the few times that he was nice to you during that entire episode. (laughs) It was a good moment. Of course, we're jesting. We're jesting just a bit, but... uh, Only a bit. But... Bruce took issue with Jeff's line of questioning at a few different points during the episode. We'll find a way to link to that when we put this out on Twitter so that you guys can go back. <laughs> Even though I agreed with him. I was telling us. him all the right stuff. I, he and I felt the same fucking way. He just doesn't understand. Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> God, he's never going to be a guest on the next podcast. <laughs> but thank you guys. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this. You know, it's as always, like it's Jordan. Like I'll echo what Jeff said. It's always a pleasure to talk music with you and get your thoughts. And this is one of those that like ever since we started, you know, planning this particular episode, I knew I had questions that I was like, I can't wait to find out what Jordan kind of has inside her skull about this record and about all things you too. So I think we've done a good job of like kind of going over a lot of those items today. So thank you for the time. Thanks for spending the time with us. It's been just a, a huge amount of fun. Yeah, it was so much fun. We'll have to do it more often. Indeed. Indeed. And with that, we'll hit stop on the record button. I mean, Jeff, this is your chance to, you know, stop me from hitting that no, stop button. Otherwise, like do it. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'm gonna do it because like we've given we've been huge givers today, so they're gonna have to like just wait for the next podcast. Yeah.